Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Build Value by Choice. I'm your host, Nana Bonsu, President and CEO of Infinite Horizons Incorporated. Our website is www.infhorizons.com. We help business owners increase the value of their business so that they can exit using whatever options that they have, or even if they want to pass it on to their children. So you go ahead and give us a look over and let us know how we may be able to assist you. As part of our one-year anniversary, we're giving away free gifts. So go ahead and let us know what you think and that you've subscribed to it, and uh, we'll be back in touch with you. Um, also, you can always join a conversation on our Facebook community page. Just search for Build Value by Choice on Facebook, and you should be able to participate in the conversation. Now, on to today's topic. Today's topic is going to be about financial planning, and our guest today is John Story. John's, John's career in finance began on Wall Street nearly 25 years ago and travel from banks to money management to a hedge fund before landing at the sushi kitchen. This experience taught him that the financial services industry is full of people interested in taking advantage of their clients first and foremost. After stepping away from business to raise a child, he watched the financial industry meltdown in 2008 and came to a realization that if financial advisory working for the best interests of his customers, it would be worth every penny of his fees. Welcome to Build Value by Choice, John. Oh, thank you for having me on. Uh, um, so can you tell me a little bit about how your Wall Street experience uh, led you to start Vivedum Financial? Yeah, and it's, uh, I sure will, uh, because it, it's, it's, it's really, everybody has an origin story uh, of some nature, right? And, and mm -hmm. this, is, this is mine. Um, I, I joined Wall Street right out of college, um, graduated in 92, and I was on a trading desk two weeks after I graduated. I didn't even, I didn't even take off. Uh, some kids take off some time for that summer before they start working, but the job was there, and so I had to grab it. Um, and I loved, I loved everything about it. Um, I loved probably for the wrong reasons. I loved the movie Wall Street. I loved the book Liars Poker. Um, I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I started out on a bond bond trading desk, mortgage backed securities, mm. um, and then just my career just sort of kept going from there. Uh, I went to business school after that, um, did a little bit of, of consulting, and then left to start my investment banking career, um, also in bonds or fixed income securities, um, and then eventually managed portfolios of, of uh, mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed securities. So those are uh, credit cards and auto loans, and basically all sorts of the types of loans that that banks or financial companies would make to people. Um, they package up all the uh, payments and then they sell them to investors as bonds. And I, I did that for, for quite a while. Uh, at one point, I, I was responsible for managing a little over $3 billion uh, for, for some uh, larger institutions. And so that was great. And it all worked out um, until the financial crisis, um, which was you know, pretty disruptive to everybody. Um, not only, you know, people lost their jobs. Um, I did lose my job there, but I also lost, I think, a little bit of the innocence that I had all that time. Um, and the innocence was that I really believed that what I was helping Wall Street to do was helping people. Um, and once everything started crumbling, I saw much better how Wall Street wasn't so much just helping people, but they were just lining their pockets and they would line their pockets whether things went well um, or whether they went poorly. Um, and once I sort of realized that and my eyes were opened, um, you know, I couldn't go back to that same type of business. 
Yeah. And so you founded your own business and then you became a step at home dad. How, how did that transition, uh, that arc, um, transpire? How did that, you know, kind of, how has that transpired and, and how has that influenced your current point of view? Yeah. I mean, that was a huge part of my life. Um, after it became apparent to me that um, the Wall Street that I knew and loved wasn't as lovable <laughs> as, I, as I thought it was, um, I just wanted to do a complete 180. And I decided to open a food business because I figure everybody has to eat. Um, and I wasn't going to open a restaurant because restaurants are notorious for their failure rate. Um, but I thought that I could help manufacture food um, that people might enjoy. Um, and so I settled on um, sushi as the type of food that that we were going to make. Um, I had a friend from business school who had opened up sushi restaurant. Um, and we sort of combined forces. And I said, OK, let's produce this sushi um, and deliver it to bulk accounts, corporate accounts, hospitals, schools, uh, and things like that. And um, spent four and a half years building that business. Um, it, I might have still been doing it today uh, had it not been for the birth of our son. Uh, because uh, we um, we did our sushi production starting at about 11 p.m. and produced overnight in order for it to be fresh for delivery in the morning to our clients. Um, and I needed to be at the production facility many nights. Um, my wife is a physician, and she could get called into the hospital uh, at any time many nights. And uh, that worked when we were without children. But uh, once there was a, a baby in the hall across from us, uh, it was a pretty un unrealistic uh, and also illegal uh, and unsafe <laughs> for us both to leave the house if we had to. Uh, and so it became pretty apparent uh, that um, her career was was more important for sure than mine at the time, uh, and and so we, we the decision was taken to sell the business, which I was lucky enough to do, um, and then did exactly what you said, became a stay-at-home dad um, until our son um, got into kindergarten. Great. So when you sold your business, what uh, I mean, did you make a well? What are some of the things? That you learned uh, from that experience that you can uh, you know share with other business owners. Yeah, I think this is important, um, and it's 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 something I talk to a lot of business owners uh, about, and I know that's something that you focus on. Um, the The most important two things I think that occurs to me when I was building the business, uh, and then when I was preparing to sell it. Uh, the first is that I wanted to build a book of business that. I could show would exist even after I walked out the door. Um, so the business was not con con you know, connected specifically to John Stoy. Um, that the brand, the product, that was what mattered so that somebody else could buy it, could step in, and then the customers shouldn't notice anything different. Um, and so that was the first thing I did. So that's why I wanted to build a book of corporate clients. Uh, and we had uh, contracts with folks. So the more paperwork that you can point to uh, that shows uh, a continuing cash flow, uh, the better off you're going to be you know, when you're trying to show your books to potential buyers. So that's number one. And number two is, frankly, to document everything. Um, make everything a process and record those processes. And the joke that I had was that um, if you'd walk into my general manager's office, we had all these binders on, on a bookcase there. Each binder was a process and they were all color coded. And I used to say that the more binders that you had uh, in the office, uh, the better your offers were going to be for your company. 
because if people are coming in to do due diligence um, and to look at purchasing you, um, they really want to know, sure, they do they want to see the, the bank account statements? Yes. Uh, but they also really want to know how. what's the instruction book to run the company. Um, and so if you provide that to them, they're going to be a heck of a lot more comfortable, um, you know, potentially making you an offer. Yeah. So it's not just financial documentation that should be complete, but also the systems documentation for your business processes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's great. So um, you had mentioned something about, uh, I guess, in, as part of the, my intro, uh, about how um, financial advisors um, need to be uh, looking out for the best interests of their business owner clients. And your epiphany from the 2008 um, financial crisis, um, how it showed you that, you know, it wasn't necessarily always the case that Wall Street was looking out for the best interests of investors. Um, what are some of the things that business owners should be looking for um, to determine if uh, if an advisor has their best interest in mind? Well, I think that the good thing is, is that, um, business owners uh, are going to end up looking at this aspect of potentially working with a professional or financial advisor in the same way. Um, you really want to know, is that person, as you say, going to act in your best interest? Uh, and in the uh, financial advisory uh, business, that's called uh, being a fiduciary. So uh, if you see somebody um, who says they're a fiduciary, um, then they're required to put your best interest, their client's best interest ahead of theirs. Um, and what that means on a very general basis is, is that, say, let's just say, for example, a non-fiduciary broker or even investment advisor, because not every investment advisor is a fiduciary, a non-fiduciary may be incented to sell you uh, a financial product, maybe an insurance policy or even a bond or a, or a stock that they are going to earn a good commission on. And it might be fine for you, but it may not be as good as a similar product that doesn't pay them a commission. Um, and so that's where you want to avoid as much as possible though that type of conflict of interest. Uh, and so finding a fiduciary uh, is extremely important. Um, the, the challenging part is, is that, and I've written about this, that the term fiduciary has has really, in my opinion, become a marketing buzzword more than anything else. Does it mean something uh, legally? Yes, it does. But uh, the regulations give uh, investment professionals and financial professionals a lot of leeway uh, <laughs> in terms of when they act in a fiduciary or when they are required to act in a fiduciary manner with their clients and when they can sort of take off the fiduciary hat and put on the sales hat. Uh, and so my advice is always to look as hard as you can at the structure of the business. And what I mean, when the business I'm speaking about is the business of the financial advisor, not your business, the structure of the financial advisor's business. What are their incentives? How are they paid? And from that, you can get a lot clearer idea as to whether they're going to be fiduciary at all times uh, or not. Um, because of and and that sort of leads into why I structured uh, verbatim financial my my RIA which stands for registered investment advisor um, my RIA ver verbatim is structures as a flat fee advisor so my clients pay one single fee each year they know exactly what they're getting for it doesn't matter um, whether they want to keep a bunch of their capital in their business doesn't matter whether they have a bunch of capital 
with uh, in the stock market outside of my control, they are paying for my advice, uh, both financial uh, and investment advice, uh, regardless of, of, of that. Whereas other advisors may, they're, they're sort of known as asset gatherers, uh, advisors who are paid based upon the amount of assets under their management. And so that that you know that's a that can be and pre, can present conflicts of interest. Again, that I like to eliminate. Yes, that is awesome. Um, how do you think the current market conditions are you know affecting businesses? Well, it's a you know, I think for everybody, there's a lot more uncertainty now than there was a year ago. Uh, it's 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 tough to imagine. For me, I think about it a lot. I think all the time. During COVID, I thought about well, what if I still had the sushi company, um, and I know the folks who are running it uh, today, and I wonder, you know, how are they dealing with um, increases in increases in prices? At at the same time, there's always pressures on your price. So, right as a business owner, um, if you make products or if you sell a service, um, you want to raise your price if there's an increase in your costs. But your your clients don't necessarily want an increase in prices, so so all of that's creating a lot of tension. Uh, and and then and then there's the, the frankly the stock market um, and the bond market both, which you know have seen uh, re- pretty sad reductions in in value uh, over the last year. So that creates again a pressure depending on where you were as a business owner potentially keeping your working capital. Um, it it's a tough tough situation. I think you know it's like anything else. We need to look at the short term and the long term. You know, short term. Let's make sure we can get through first payroll. <laughs> Second, you know, the rest of the year, depending on what your calendar or or fiscal year is. Uh, and then you know you have to no choice but to think of what could be there uh, next year. And then depending on the different potential outcomes, you know how are you going to navigate the business through that? What are some of the um, biggest mistakes or pitfalls that happen to business you know, businesses that are looking to expand in the current environment? The one you'll see, I think, financially is growth, and many business owners underestimate the cost of growth in the in the short term. Um, you know, the, the, the easiest way that I would think about it is the same way that I would think things that I would experience, you know, in the sushi business. So uh, quick story, I had, I won my biggest account um, and I'd been working on this account. It was to deliver sushi to the, to the Atlanta public schools. And I was working on it for a year and a half. Uh, I didn't think it was going to happen. Had tons of discussions with the chef uh, manager there, and even up through the uh, board of education and and uh, and the the, the principal uh, of the or the the superintendent of the whole Atlanta public schools. I didn't think it was going to happen. Then August one year, I got a call, and they said, "Okay, guess what? We want to do it. We need you to, to deliver um, sixty thousand pieces of sushi uh, on Tuesday, you know, August whatever sixteenth. And I started doing the math in my head and there was literally zero way that I could afford to purchase all of the uh, raw materials to make that much sushi uh, in one week. And then the other was to deliver it all because of I wasn't used to delivering, you know, that that type of size. Um, that's the type of thing that luckily I was able to negotiate with them uh, to, 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 to space it out and 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 make some some changes, but 
if I had agreed to it, to that, you know, because either I was excited or I was afraid to lose the account or something like that, um, that could have put me under because they didn't end up being the fastest payers, right? Because of mm-hmm. all businesses depend upon, you know, speed of payment. Um, and the interesting thing was, is that uh, I learned, and I think many of, 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 of your, maybe your clients and your business owner listeners understand that the bigger the company, often the, 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 the longer they wait to pay you. Uh, because if you're a small business that you're lower on their list to pay. And <laughs> so things like that. So, so, um, you know, if you don't have a lot of access to working capital, uh, lines of credit, uh, if you expend a lot of your money um, during this growth phase, and then the money doesn't come back in quickly enough, uh, that can end up being some pretty rocky situations. So when it comes to building up uh, different lines of credit to kind of give you the flow that you need um, during those kind of uh, arbitrage you know, periods where you know big businesses uh, may not be paying on time, um, what are some of the options that business owners um, should look into, especially sometimes credits can get tightened? Um, mm-hmm. What are some of it? I mean, it happened in 2008 and I believe 2012 also. Yep. Uh, and uh, so, what are and a lot of businesses ended up uh, kind of folding because of that. So, what are some of the things that you've seen work or you recommend for business owners? Um, so, so <laughs> there's different things that work, um, and there's probably fewer things um, that 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 I recommend. <laughs> uh, the the you know the the sadly the easiest the easiest thing and and frankly for small businesses, it's often the only option is to keep. Uh, an amount of cash in in a very specific segregated working capital account um, that you don't touch. Even if you need a new, uh, you, know, I mean, you might need a new printer in the office. You can't touch that for uh, for <laughs> for the for the printer or, or or the or the swag that you might want to give away to employees or whatever, um, because that has to be there in an emergency. If you dip into it and then the emergency comes. It's failed in its in its in its uh, in its whole goal. Um, if you get bigger and you're big enough to ha- have an, a relationship with a bank, um, local banks um, are and where you can develop a personal relationship that can be better than uh, you being a nameless uh, person because they might not at a larger bank they might not understand uh, the stresses that that you might be under temporarily. Um, so that credit line perhaps could be more dependable from a local bank. Um, and then there are options, companies that do things like factoring, but those get really, really expensive. Um, and so it's tough to recommend that. But um, if you need to pull a ripcord, uh, it's not a bad idea to start the relationships with those companies well before you intend to use them, and even if you never intend to use them, because the paperwork, can, uh, in order to get approved to even do an expensive type of uh, of, of of financing like factoring, um, can take so long as that could then put you out of business. Now, uh, what are some of the questions that a business owner can ask? Maybe two or three questions they can ask a financial advisor to make sure it's the right fit for them. Sure. Um, so, so, so fit is a, is a, is going to be always a personal thing. So that's just going to be talking to somebody and do you feel comfortable speaking with them? So fit is is very very important. But 
you may feel perfectly uh, comfortable talking to somebody. And then when you ask them, so how do you get paid? I mean, that's literally the first and easiest question to ask. And if they don't give you a straightforward answer, that's red flag number one. Um, and number number two, um, um, just like you want to know and your clients want to know how they're how you're how how they're going to pay you and what you're going to provide um, for their payment, you know, you really want to be clear uh, in your mind what you're getting for your money and how are you paying for whatever you're getting. And 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 that sounds simplistic, but but it's true because of then when I go and I think about in financial advisory, again, there's a there's basically three ways to uh, pay a financial advisor. The vast majority of them charge uh, a percentage of what, however many your of your dollars they manage. Um, the the average is about one percent. Some charge more, and ho- thankfully, some are beginning to charge less. But so that would be just to make the math easy. If you had a million dollars and this investment advisor is going to help you uh, manage those that million dollars, they would charge you ten thousand dollars a year. That might seem okay, and it might seem to make sense. Um, but 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 that that one it results in potential conflicts of interest because what if there's a scenario where you're thinking of buying a new building for your business and you need to take five hundred thousand uh, dollars out of your investment account to, to buy that building? The advisor knows that if he recommends that to you, uh, his fee is going to go down by 50% (laughs) as soon as you make that purchase. Uh, And so the advisor may have an incentive to recommend that you take out a loan instead of liquidate your investment account. Now, I don't know which is going to be the right answer for you, but all I know is that the question in the back of my head was this, if he recommends the loan, was it because the loan was the better answer for you? Or was it the better answer for him? So that that can be the problem, uh, you know, a conflict of interest with the assets under management uh, model. Uh, the second problem is that suppose your business does just a heck of a hugely profitable year um, and you deposit another million dollars with him. Now your fee is $20,000 a year. Is he doing any different work? For you, uh, from one year to the next, simply because your business was profitable and you and you decided to invest another million dollars, um, the the you know the easy the quick answer is no. Um, the the your advisor should be doing the same work that he was doing for you, uh, regardless. So that's a problem with the AUM model. Then there is also my model, the flat fee model, um, which, in my opinion. Uh, it eliminates, again, several of those conflicts of interest that go along with potentially the assets under management model, um, whereas you know exactly what you're paying for. I'm gonna, do, I'm doing my best job for all my clients every year. They all get the same level of attention. So guess what? They all pay the same fee. Um, that's transparent. That's easy. I think it's easier, frankly, for business owners to understand than uh, the, your, your, your average uh, sort of man on the street looking for uh, investment advice, which is, which, is, which is nice because as a former business owner, I do enjoy working with business owners. Um, and then the third model is people and it, are starting to do more uh, hourly investment advice. So you could work with an investment advisor on an hourly basis. Um, I don't personally do that. Uh, that also eliminates those assets under management type conflicts of interest. But at the same time, um, my concern with that is, you know, we've all, or a lot of us have worked with attorneys. They typically bill by the hour. And if you've worked with an attorney, 
you know that feeling when you're on the phone with your with your lawyer and you're like, geez, uh oh, that's another three hundred bucks. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I don't want any of my clients to ever feel like they have to hang up the phone with me because they're worried about getting charged for another hour or another fifteen minutes of time or anything like that. So, so, but that can be a very appropriate way for people to source investment and financial advice. Nothing against it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, um, John. Really appreciate your insights. Clearly, uh, it's about making sure your financial documentation, your systems are in order, asking those three key questions to financial advisors to make sure that they align with your goals and your vision and making sure that you properly um, have, you know, reserves, capital reserves in place to protect yourself from the downside. any um, any um, advice and how can people get in contact with you if they want to uh, learn more about what you do and maybe even uh, you know, see if they can work with you? Sure. Um, so people can easily get in touch with me by going to my website. That's verbatimfinancial.com. Um, they can also, for better or for worse, I'm, I'm, I'm on a lot of social media and all my handles are the same. It's uh, at uh, Stoyboy, S-T-O-J-B-O-J. I got that off from a from a, uh, a nickname I had uh, during college. So uh, that's I'm everywhere at at Stoyboy. Um, but the the thing that I often suggest that business owners do if they ever get a chance to get their head above water because of I know how you could just go from again from payroll to payroll. Uh, and from sales, you know, call to sales call, not look being able to look at your own personal life uh, from a big picture. Um, if you can't get a chance to come up for air, um, you know, try to talk to somebody if you haven't gotten a financial plan um, for your personal life in order. Because I'm speaking from experience, during the four years or so that I ran my sushi business, I practically ignored my personal financial life, with the exception of just doing my taxes. Um, and and it definitely uh, put me behind the eight ball on a few things. And so that's just something I say, you know, if you can get somebody to help you with it and have them simplify it for you, the less complexity, the better. The less complexity, the cheaper it's going to be, the cheaper it's going to be, the more of your own money you're going to keep in your pocket. And then you can concentrate on your own business. And imagine if you didn't have to worry about what was going on outside the business financially in your life. And we're going to have all your information in the show notes as well. So in case people are driving and they can't get to that information right away. So thanks again, John. Really appreciate your insights. And uh, for everyone, that's it for this week. See you next week. 